Jesus' miracles demonstrate his deity and are designed to develop our faith in him. God hates anything that hinders anyone from coming to him and experiencing his love and forgiveness. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. open your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of John, John chapter 2. We're going to finish that up today, Lord willing. The Gospel of John was written about 85 to 90 AD, which was some 50 plus years after Christ's ascension into heaven. And John stated the purpose of the book, the purpose he wrote the Gospel, kind of a backdoor key. At the very end of the Gospel, John 20 verse 31, he tells you why he wrote the Gospel. Therefore, Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, John recorded a small number of Jesus' signs, only seven, that he performed as proof, as demonstrable proof that Jesus was the Son of God who took on human flesh. And the purpose of him recording those signs is to persuade the reader to place their faith in the substitutionary sacrificial death and resurrection of the God-man Jesus Christ so that they would have eternal life in a relationship through Christ. So that's the point of the gospel. So John hits you between the eyes in the first verse of the first chapter, and he says, I'm making the claim that Jesus is God, second member of the Trinity, who came and took on human form, full retention of his God status, his God identity, his God character. He was fully God and fully man at the same time, completely and totally unique in the history of the universe for all eternity. Now, in chapter 1, he brings eyewitnesses to document that claim. And so far, we've seen the testimony, the witness of John the Baptist. We've seen the witness of Andrew, and we've seen the witness of Nathaniel. Now, in chapter 2, we're going to see the first of seven signs. A sign always points to something. The signs that John records point to the deity of Christ. We're going to take a look at the first of those signs today in chapter 2 that John records that demonstrate the deity of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to do, do it. Here's the principle. God cares about the details of our everyday lives. God cares about the details, the small details of our everyday lives. 
John notes that these events took place on the third day after Nathaniel met Jesus, probably on a Wednesday. Cana is an itty-bitty little village located somewhere thought to be about nine miles north of Nazareth. And this wedding must have included a relative of Mary's and Jesus, since both Mary and Jesus were invited to the wedding. I don't know whether it was a niece or whatever, but at any rate, John records this, among other things, to show us the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. He participates in everyday life. Weddings, you'll see him appearing at funerals. You'll see him eating. You'll see him resting. You'll see him talking and walking. He was fully man, fully participated in our everyday life. Now remember, at this point in time, there's only five disciples. Only five so far. Andrew, Simon Peter, his brother, Philip, Nathaniel, and John. So when they talk about the disciples, we're only talking about five. Now, just to give you some social context, weddings were huge social events. They were community celebrations and very, very large, uh, important events. They were times of great joy and celebration. Weddings for virgins took place on Wednesdays, only Wednesdays. Weddings for widows took place on Thursdays, only Thursdays. So when you got married, uh, it was one of two days of the week. And this, quote, getting married process involved three phases, three distinct phases. The first phase was the engagement or betrothal phase, and that took place generally about 12 months prior to the actual wedding itself. So the betrothal phase lasted for a whole year. At that time, in the community, the couple were treated as though they were married. It was a legal arrangement, betrothal engagement, you were treated as if you were married, you lived with your parents, you were obviously remained celibate, but you lived with your parents' homes, but if you broke up at that point in time, it took a legal divorce decree. Now remember, Joseph was engaged to Mary, Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, Joseph was going to get a divorce decree and put her away, which means I'm going to divorce you privately, uh, obviously, because Joseph thought she had committed sexual indiscretion. God took care of that. He gave, showed Joseph an angel, had a vision. The angel explained to him, Mary is with child by the Holy Spirit. This is the Son of God, and you will name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. You should marry Mary, which he did. Joseph exercised great faith, even though he and Mary probably encountered vast amounts of social rejection, judgment, it required great faith on the part of Mary and Joseph, which is a sidebar, but nonetheless significant. So during this 12-month engagement period, the groom is responsible to build a house for his bride. And generally, that was either a series of rooms adjacent to mom and dad's place or literally an addition to mom and dad's place, connected with his parents' homes. So when the engagement period ended... After the 12 months, stage two began. And that was a literally a wedding procession. So the groom and his friends would travel usually by night with a great big torchlight procession, either walking or on horseback, and they would all go to the bride's house. And they would pick up the bride, and there were a lot of speeches and expressions of goodwill. And then they would do this torchlight procession would go back to the groom's parents' house where the wedding took place, right? And at that wedding, of course, they had the wedding ceremony, which we really know very little about, but the subsequent feast often lasted a week. 
So if you think you've been to long wedding ceremonies, this party lasted a week. And it took major planning. This was a significant financial and social commitment. And the groom was responsible for providing all the goodies for the wedding guests. Food, drink, etc., etc. Running out of food or wine was unthinkable. It was a shameful breach of etiquette, number one, but it could have legal repercussions. Believe it or not, the groom could actually be sued by the guests for failing to provide what was expected in the community of a wedding celebration if he ran out of food or drink. So this was a major deal. Even worse, no one ever moved away from your hometown. So no one ever forgot that your wedding was a screw-up. You ran out of food, you ran out of wine. 30, 40 years later, they would remember. So running out of wine was a massive social faux pas. This was a significant deal. Mary, interestingly enough, appears to be more than just a guest at this wedding. It kind of think, you kind of read this and you think, she might have been involved in catering this thing. She's got some responsibility, apparently, because she's the first one to come and say, we're out of wine, or they're out of wine. So she informs Jesus of the problem. What's not stated, but what's strongly implied in Jesus' response is she's hoping he's going to provide a solution to the running out of wine problem. She knows he's the Messiah. She's been told that at birth, you know, before birth, Gabriel said, his name is going to be Jesus. He shall save his people from the sin. So she knew he was deity. She knew he was God, but he hasn't done any miracles documenting his deity yet. If he does perform a miracle now, it will be a clear sign to the nation that, in fact, he is the Messiah, and she's kind of hoping he will do that. And Jesus responds to her in some really unexpected ways. Number one, he doesn't call her mom. He doesn't even call her Mary. He simply says woman. Now, in that culture, that was a term of respect, but it was not a term of endearment, to coin a phrase, right? Remember, he called the Samaritan woman, woman, and at the cross, he calls Mary woman when he tells John, behold your mother, behold your son, etc. So he adds the phrase, what does that have to do with us? It literally translates, what to me and to you? Why are you saying this to me? It's an expression that creates distance between two parties. He's asking her what has caused her to think that this problem she has identified is now his problem. It's a rebuke to Mary, really. It's a rebuke to her suggestion that he do something to prove that he's the Messiah. Bob Deffenbaugh, pastor, summarizes, quote, It's almost as though Mary has said, Jesus, they're out of wine. We really need to do something. To which Jesus responds, Ma'am, what do you mean we? Your problem is not my problem. Now, the core issue here is that Jesus' relationship with his earthly mother has now irrevocably shifted. Scripture tells us that when he was a child, he lived in submission to Joseph and Mary, even though he was God. But it appears that Joseph has died sometime earlier. It's not told in Scripture, but we certainly have strong ideas that that's the case. And Jesus is beginning his public ministry now, and he is operating on his heavenly father's calendar, 
not his earthly mother's calendar. It's interesting, you do not see Mary mentioned in Scripture again until the cross. So Jesus' relationship with Mary has changed from mother-son to savior-sinner. God-human, right? He says, my hour has not yet come. He's not referring to going to the cross. He's referring to the hour of revealing himself to the nation as the Messiah. And he's going to do that very shortly. By the way, once you start doing miracles, it tends to put the spotlight on you, right? And Jesus is going to be very careful about paying attention to his Father's timeline, his Heavenly Father's timeline, about making that public declaration. Mary submits to Jesus. She doesn't argue with him. She doesn't try to change his mind. She turns to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. So you're kind of assuming she must have some kind of official role in this wedding if she can tell the servants what to do. By the way, that is fabulous advice. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. You could probably put that on your mirror and look at it every day. You will never go wrong if you simply do whatever Jesus tells you to do, right? I mean, he knows you best, loves you most, has the plan for your life. It begs the question, why would you not want to do what he says? And I can hear some of you saying, well, that might depend on what he says. But that means he's no longer Lord, you're now negotiating, right? We're going to find out what that's going to imply for the servants right now in verse 6. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the pots with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. Here's the principle. When God's commands don't make sense to you, obey anyway. God's ways are infinite. Our understanding is infinitesimal. When God's commands don't make sense to you, obey anyway. God's ways are infinite, and our understanding is infinitesimal. Now, let's unpack this. The Jews had very elaborate ceremonies for ritual purification. The last book of the Mishnah has 126 chapters and 1,000 separate items related to ritual purification and washing. That alone occupies, of course, a thousand separate items. The idea was not merely physical cleanliness. The idea is I'm washing the outside in order to make a picture of the pure inside. It was washing for spiritual purity. The idea was since God was holy and pure, and he commands his people to be holy and pure, Purifying the outside meant that you were purifying the inside. So they washed their hands and their faces and their cups and their pots, and they had all these hundreds and hundreds of rules about ritual washings. And what the religious leaders of that era forgot was that God was concerned with the purity of their hearts, not necessarily the purity of their dishes and their clothes and their body and all this other stuff. Matter of fact, Jesus confronted their hypocrisy in Mark 7, 6, and he said to them, quote, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, 
this people honors me with their lips, external show, but their heart, their core, their motivation is far from me. So they were all about external appearances before people. You know, look good, smell good, do all the right external things, but not about their inner heart relationship with God. And Jesus was forever castigating the Pharisees for that purpose. If you want to read a sermon that will just curl your hair, read Matthew 23. The seven woes that Jesus says to the Pharisees. I mean, it is scintillating. So a traditional Jewish wedding involved a lot of ritual, a lot more than a typical Western wedding. I've been to some extraordinarily casual weddings. Have you been to some casual weddings? As a matter of fact, I've been to some weddings that are so casual, I wonder, did you actually promise to marry each other in here? I mean, I'm listening for this, this vow of commitment. I'm listening for, is the Lord mentioned? How many of you have been to weddings where the Lord's name was not mentioned at all? Happens all the time. And you look at that and you go, the chances of you two making it without the Holy Spirit is somewhere close to zero. I mean, if I was a betting man, I would say, if you don't have the Holy Spirit in your wedding, probably not a lot of good things going to happen. But at any rate, the Jewish wedding involved a lot of ritual, a lot of washings, and these six stone pots, you're talking about 150 to 180 gallons of water. Lots of water for ritual washing. And these pots are kept outside the house, so they would not have been visible, of course, to the guests. But apparently some of the water's already been used in this wedding because Jesus says what? Go fill them up. Go fill them up. So they've used some of this water in the, in the ritual ceremonies of the, wa- of the wedding, etc. Now, those of you who camp know the difference between potable water and non-potable water, right? Potable water you can drink. Non-potable water you probably should not drink. You can wash your hands or whatever it is, but you probably shouldn't internally take them. So Jesus tells these servants to do the unthinkable. This is non-potable water. This is water for washing your outside, not drinking. He says, take some of this non-potable water that's used for cleansing, which means it's used to wash dirt away, sin away, and bring it to the head waiter, man in charge of the food and drink. Can you imagine being a servant and saying, um, serving wine at a, serving water at a, at a wedding is unthinkable. You never would serve water at a wedding. Wine was a symbol of joy and celebration. You always served wine. And serving non-potable water that was used for ritual cleansing was inconceivable, right? You just wouldn't do that. But Mary has told them, what? Whatever he tells you to do, do it. So they do it. They take the water to the head waiter, verse 9. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from. But the servants who drew the water, they knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And then John gives us a summary statement, verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Here's the principle. Jesus' miracles demonstrate his deity and are designed to develop our faith in him. Jesus' miracles demonstrate his deity and are designed to develop our faith in him. 
So the head waiter gets this wine and he does the mandatory sniff test, you know, and the, and the smell test, and then he calls for the bridegroom. Can you imagine the servants? They're going, we bring this guy potable water, he smells it, and he's going to call the bridegroom. What's he going to do? Chew the bridegroom out? What do you mean serving water? They don't know it's wine. They don't. They bring him water. So they must have been holding their breath. And amazingly, the head waiter congratulates the bridegroom. He says, you know, most hosts serve the good wine first, and everybody's drunk, and their taste buds are dead. They can't taste anything. Then you bring out the vinegar, you know, the poor wine, and let them drink that, and you hope no one will notice. But you have saved the best wine for last. This groom has outdone himself. Now, everybody's pretty happy at this point in time. The wedding's been saved. The groom has not been discredited. But um, I think the servants must have been stunned. They know that they put water in the pots. And they know they took water out of the pots. And they know they take the water to the head waiter. And now the head waiter says, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. Now, with white wine, it probably looked like water, but it was, I don't know if they actually looked at the color or not, but I guarantee you one thing they did. They went back to those water pots and had a sample <laughs> just to make sure that the, what's going on here, you know, they were going to check that out themselves. Now, this is what we would call a luxury miracle. This wasn't an essential miracle, right? I mean, no one is dying, no one is sick, no one's raising the dead. This is providing wine. Fine wine for a wedding. It's a celebration. But it tells you that Jesus cares about the little things, not just the big things. He cares about the details. Jesus cares about as much about your lost keys as your broken heart. He really does. The little stuff matters. We pray over lost things all the time. And I can tell you the Lord listens. The good news is you will never interrupt God when you pray. He is never too busy to talk with you. He is not, you know, sitting in front of a bank of phones and triaging calls and going, well, that's a lost key. We'll get to them later. Oh, that's, they can't breathe. I better get to that one right now. That's not how God works. God is infinite. He can deal with everything all at once, and he never is busy. He's never going to put you on hold. That's not how he works. He's your father. You're his beloved child. He loves it when you call. Calling is called prayer, right? When your children call you or your grandchildren call you, do you like to hear from them? Do you think your Heavenly Father likes to hear from you? He loves to hear from you on a regular basis. Here's the good news. Every time you call, you call collect. Doesn't cost you a dime. By the way, Father's Day is the day when most dads receive phone calls collect from their adult children. I know, I know, now that's not a big deal. 20 years ago, that was a big deal. Okay. So the principle here, obviously, Jesus cares about the little things in life. Um, and he wanted to bless this wedding party with celebration. But he also wanted to make a statement about his identity. John says this is the very first sign that pointed to his divine nature. But it's a very understated miracle. Jesus didn't go in and say, I'm turning water into wine and make a scene. He just made it happen, very understated. As a matter of fact, the witnesses to this miracle are Jesus, the five disciples, Mary, and the servants. That's it. The guests never knew. The head waiter never knew. 
The bride and the groom never knew. There's only a very few witnesses to this miracle. And the text says that the miracle revealed his glory, revealed his deity, and his disciples believed in him. As a matter of fact, he kept doing miracles, and as those signs proliferated, their faith increased. And we, on the far side of the cross, we have a record of all of it. We not just one of the time we see it all. Verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Capernaum is located on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. It was a major uh, trade route um, from Egypt to Damascus. The trade uh, route, camel route, went right through that neck of the woods. Uh, the original location of the village of Cana is debated. It was a very, very small mud hut village. Some claim, most people, it was about 16 miles southwest of Capernaum. So if you go southwest of Capernaum on the map, you can see uh, the village of Cain. Uh, Nazareth, Jesus' hometown a little further south, was about 1,400 feet above sea level. Uh, Capernaum is at the Sea of Galilee, which is 700 feet below sea level. So when you go downhill from Nazareth, you're walking downhill to Capernaum. Pretty heavy distance, almost 2,100 feet. So we know that Jesus spent a lot of time in Capernaum. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, record most of Jesus' Galilean ministry. And he spent over 18 months in Capernaum. John, contrary to those, spends most of the time Jesus' ministry in Judea, in Jerusalem. So Jesus did go up annually to celebrate the Passover feast to Jerusalem. So we know that Jesus changed the water into wine in Cana probably in February, early March. He then traveled to Capernaum, stayed there a few days, and then traveled south to Jerusalem for the Passover festival, which was held in early spring, probably early April, late March, early April. And you will always notice throughout the Gospels, it always says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem, regardless of whether he's north or south. Well, Jerusalem's 2,500 feet, almost 2,500 feet above sea level. Capernaum's 700 feet below sea level. So when you go to Jerusalem, you're walking uphill. If you're, in the, if you're up by the um, uh, uh, Salton Sea, the Dead Sea, and you're walking to Jerusalem, you're going 1,300 feet below sea level up to Jerusalem. So all roads go uphill. Jerusalem's on a hill. Jerusalem from Capernaum is about 80 miles. You can see them walking. They would walk probably down by the Jordan River Valley. As a matter of fact, the disciples, most Jews, wouldn't go through Samaria, so they'd cross over the east side of the Jordan to avoid that. At any rate, I point this out to say when it says Jesus did blah, 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 it wasn't a matter of 15 minutes later he's in Jerusalem. It was a multi-day walk. 80 miles takes a while to get there, right? So he's now in Jerusalem, verse 14. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling doves, he said, take these things away, stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it is written, quote, zeal for your house will consume me, unquote. Here's the principle. God hates anything that hinders anyone from coming to him and experiencing his love and forgiveness. God hates anything that hinders anyone from coming to him and experiencing his love and forgiveness. 
Now, this temple is not Solomon's temple. That was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't the second temple. That's been destroyed. This is the third temple, also known as Herod's temple. It's the temple where Jesus was taken when he was eight days old by Joseph and Mary, right, to be circumcised. It was the temple where 12 years later they found Jesus when he was 12 years old asking and answering questions of Old Testament scholars. The Passover feast was a central um, celebratory feast in Jewish religious calendar. It was a mandatory feast that every Jewish male, 12 years and older, was required to attend. So Jerusalem would be absolutely packed on the Passover. Josephus estimates there was well over a million people in town at Passover time because devout Jews would travel from foreign countries to be in Jerusalem for Passover. So it just wasn't locals. It was the entire region. And the Passover festival, as you recall, was celebrated to commemorate God's passing over uh, uh, his children and delivering them from slavery in Egypt. Every family, as you recall, was commanded to slaughter a Passover lamb and sprinkle the blood on the doorpost, the top of the doorpost and the two sides on their doorways. So when God's angel of death came through to judge Egypt, the angel of death would pass over that house when he saw the blood on the doorpost. And that's a perfect picture, if you will, in advance of looking at the perfect Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to take away the sin of the world by shedding his own blood so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So Passover was a picture with the Lamb of the coming Lamb of God, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, who would take away the sin of the world. Now, every Jewish male was required to come to the temple with an appropriate sacrifice on Passover. It had to be a one-year-old male lamb, unblemished, perfect. Only perfect sacrifices were acceptable. On the 10th day of the month, Abib or Nisan, that was typically late March, early April, depending on the calendar, that male lamb was selected. Four days later on the 14th day, after you've had time for your family to bond with this lamb and learn to love this lamb, then you slaughtered it between 3 and 6 p.m. in the afternoon as a payment, as an atonement, as a covering for your sins for the last year. Now, many Jews came from a distance. They weren't native to Israel. So it wasn't very practical for them to, you know, come by sea and trade route and try and bring a perfect lamb for the sacrifice. So those in charge of the temple would provide an acceptable sacrificial animal, you know, for the worshiper to purchase. Now, in addition, not only was the animal sacrifice required, you were required to pay a temple tax of one half shekel. Only Jewish coinage. No foreign currency was allowed. So there were money-changing services available on site as well, usually at fairly exorbitant rates. If you've ever traveled overseas and had to change money, it can be an expensive service depending on where you go. Um, The family of Annas, the former high priest, controlled this temple operations, and they had made it into a money-making machine. Formerly, when Christ was young, they would purchase animals and do money changing outside the temple, literally on the sides of the slope of the Mount of Olives. So it was outside the temple complex. However, at this time, they've moved all the money changing operations and the animal buying inside the temple complex itself. And they moved it into the court of the Gentiles, which I'll give you a picture of that in a second. That was convenient, right? But it was also corrupt. Theoretically, 
You could bring your own cattle, your own sheep, your own birds to sacrifice, but they had to pass inspection. They had to pass inspection. Guess who did the inspections? The same group that had the approved animals for you to purchase at vastly inflated prices. So you brought your lamb and they said, ah, there's a little insect bite on the back leg, doesn't qualify as perfect. We have one here for you, only three prices, right? Retail times three, 300%. You should be so lucky today, right? So they would exploit the worshipers for greed and they would sell these animals at vastly inflated prices. I read a commentary of the history of that time. It was so bad that a pair of doves that were worth five cents would be sold for $4. They were treating God's house like a stockyard, a shopping mall, and a loan sharking operation all in one. And that's why Jesus was so angry. He said, this house is designed for prayer, and you're doing business, and you're ripping off the worshipers in the process. He called them a den of thieves. All these vendors that had animals to sell and money changers, guess who they had to pay to get a slot in the court of the Gentiles to sell their stuff? They had to pay the high priest, Annas. It was all about loan shark and money-making business. It wasn't prayer in God's house. It was profit in God's house. And Jesus is righteously angry. He fashions a whip out of ropes, drives them all out, turns over the money changers, and then he tells them why he's so angry. He says, stop making my father's house a place of business. They're treating something holy, worship, as something common doing business. They were using the worship of God to get rich. They were like some in the Catholic Church back in Martin Luther's day who used to sell indulgences with cash, for cash. Here was the promise, quote, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Such a deal. They were saying, you can buy salvation for cash. Salvation is not for sale. It is the gift of God. You cannot earn it. You cannot pay for it. Jesus paid it all, and salvation is only accessed by faith in Christ's sacrifice. Here's what Jesus was so angry about. They were a stumbling block to those who wanted a relationship with the God of Israel. What did Jesus say? Better a millstone, 75-pound rock, be hung around your neck and you thrown in the deep end of the swimming pool called the ocean and drown, rather than put a stumbling block in front of one of these little ones. He's talking about little children, but he's also talking about the young in faith. So we have an obligation to live our lives so as not to be a stumbling block to get to Christ. They were putting a massive stumbling block for those who were seeking to come to know the God of Israel. And it's easy to point at them. But you know, it's easy to treat Christianity as a business. I mean, we got organizational charts, we got job descriptions, we got strategies, you know, all that stuff. By the way, there's nothing wrong with being organized. But the body of Christ is more than an organization, it's an organism. It is the family of Christ, right? Christianity is, in our culture, is sometimes very commercialized. Very commercialized. You know, you send us a donation, we'll send you a little trinket, a little cross or a little, you know, magic, whatever it happens to be, right? Like Annas, they want to profit from other people's spiritual matters. Christian ministry was never designed to be Christian industry, where the spiritual needs of others can be used to make a profit. 
So he does this, and the Jews, when John talks about the Jews, he's talking about Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. Not talking about the common people. Anytime you see John talk about the Jews, he's talking about spiritual leadership of the Jewish nation. Verse 18. The Jews then said to him, quote, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Here's the principle. Jesus is God and has the authority to purify what belongs to him. I want you to add one word in there. Jesus is God and has the authority to possess and purify what belongs to him. He's owner. He said, Matthew 28, 18, his last statement to the disciples before he was ascended into heaven, he said, quote, what? All authority is given to me in heaven on an earth. What's interesting is the Jews don't argue with him that the temple should not be a shopping mall. Uh, at the time, the, the, the Tinjal courts were called the bazaars of Annas, right? They had a monopoly on on this money-making thing. Remember that in Israel, there's two major religious parties. You got the liberal party called the Sadducees. They were in bed with Rome. They were political. They did deals with Rome all the time. And then you had the Pharisees. They were about 6,000. They were the legal eagles. They were the interpreters of Jewish law and the enforcers. So you had the conservative Pharisees and the liberal Sadducees. And the only thing they agreed on is they hated Jesus. But they hated each other as well, right? So the issue is not that the temple has been cleansed. The issue is who did the cleansing? Because Jesus said what? My father's house. Whoa! If he says this is my father's house, he's claiming to be what? God's son, which means he's claiming to be God himself. And they're saying those big words. If you're claiming to be God's son, you, you owe us a sign to prove that you're God's son. Who are you to think you exert authority over God's house? Well, Jesus doesn't take their bait. He's not going to play on their terms. He says, destroy this temple, and the three days I will raise it up again. Well, they think he's talking about the physical temple, right? You'll see this mistake made all the time. Jesus is forever talking about spiritual things, and his disciples and the Jews forever literalize it, and they think it's physical things, right? So they respond, it took 46 years to build this. You're going to do it in three days, and they don't realize he's talking about his body. Well, his body is the temple of who? The Holy Spirit. He's prophesying about his coming crucifixion and his bodily resurrection, which is going to occur three days after his death. By the way, the disciples didn't get it either. Until when? After he rose from the dead. Then they said, oh yeah, yeah, I get it. So the reality is Jesus is God, and God always has the right to possess what belongs to him. God always has the right to purify what belongs to him. And it's easy to say, well, okay, we're talking about God's house. Well, today, what is God's house? You are God's house. He lives in you. And he has a right to purify his temple, does he not? And he has a right to possess his temple, does he not? 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy that person for what? The temple of God is what? 
holy. And that is what you are. Yeah, it's holy because the Holy Spirit lives inside you. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You don't have the right to do whatever you want with your body. I love this culture. This is my body. Well, if you're so large and in charge, then don't die. And by the way, don't age before you die either. Demonstrate that you're so strong that you're not going to age and look worse five years from now than you are today, and don't die either. Come on. It's a gift from God. The body is a gift from God. Now, Paul is talking about sexual sin here, but it's true across the board. Your body belongs to God. Your spirit belongs to God. The Holy Spirit indwells us. So the temple of God that he cleansed here, the Jewish temple, today he doesn't dwell in a building. He dwells inside his people. And God owns us. He created us. He redeemed us. He adopted us into his family. We bear his name, right? We are called Christians, which means a Christ one, one who belongs to Christ. The third member of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, lives inside us. We are his temple. Anything you look at this week, the Holy Spirit looks at. Any thought you think this week, the Holy Spirit thinks with you. Anything you put in your mouth, the Holy Spirit eats it, figuratively speaking. When I became aware that the Holy Spirit was with me with everything I did, it scared the living pants off me. I'm like, man, Lord, I have drugged you places where you probably were not very excited to go. Yeah, that's pretty good to remember for the first of the year. The Holy Spirit lives in us, therefore we are required to maintain a holy temple. Because a temple is what? A place where the worshiper meets with God. Well, where do you meet with God? Here, inside you. He lives inside us. He is holy and it requires that those who worship him must be holy as well. So if Jesus is so angry over the defilement of a physical space called the Jewish temple, how does he feel when his people are not holy and defile themselves? That's when you get convicted of sin, right? It's a call to purity. And that's when the Lord says to us, this is probably a good day to do this, what's 2023 going to bring? Live a holy life because I'm a holy God. And you are my children. I am your father. God wants us to be pure in every area of our life. By the way, I don't know anything that will so confound the world than the power of a holy life. It won't make you popular because people don't want to be convicted of their sin. But nothing will convey the reality of Jesus Christ in your life other than obedient, holy living from the inside out. Does that make sense so far? Okay. Let's review, and then Tom will come and lead us in prayer and praise. Number one, Jesus cares about the details of our everyday life. There is no detail in your life that is too small for Jesus to care about. None. That's why Paul says, Pray about everything. Everything. When, God command, when God's commands don't make sense to you, and I would expect that some of you this year, including yours truly, God's going to tell me to do something and I will not understand it. That should not surprise you. There's a lot of things I don't understand. By the word, 
when God, I said God's ways are infinite and our understanding is infinitesimal, that means by comparison near zero. But God always makes sense, not necessarily to me, to himself, because he's God. Obey anyway. Number three, Jesus' miracles demonstrate his deity. And as I mentioned, we live on the far side of the cross and we have all of his signs written down, eyewitnessed, verified for our benefit. And they're designed to develop our faith in him. This year, like last year, the Lord is going to bring you and I through circumstances that he has designed specifically to develop your faith. It's called spiritual weight training, spiritual resistance training. And we would rather skip that. But he wants our faith stronger a year from now than it is today. And the only way it's going to get stronger is if it gets stressed. And so I promise you, we will have some stresses this year. But he has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you, right? Number four, God hates anything that prevents anyone from coming to him and experiencing his love and forgiveness. So God's people need to be the doorway that introduces people to Jesus, not the stumbling block or the wall that keeps them away. And lastly, Jesus is God and has the authority to possess and purify what belongs to him. And that's important because we do belong to him. If you ask the Lord to cleanse you, I promise you he will. You might not like the process, but you will love the end result. Because there's nothing like the intimacy that comes from an obedient, pure life with our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening on January 1. It's a great way to begin the new year. Looking forward next week to continuing a read ahead in John 3. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.